0: Hello, welcome to the Do Lectures podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Today on Being Amazing Despite, we are talking to Dan Brown. Dan is the founder and CEO of the Positive Transformation Group, who quite simply have an ambition to positively impact the lives of a billion people. Now that in itself would be is an incredible ambition and hopefully would make for a very interesting podcast, but what's really interesting and what really is the being amazing despite here is dan's own story dan came from a world of drugs of alcohol of gangsters he also was very successful but the two lives often merged and he's got an incredible story to tell on the back of his own transformation he has now launched for positive transformation group it's an amazing story it's a very honest story and i would urge you to please grab a coffee put your feet up and have a listen to dan brown being amazing despite dan brown welcome to the do lectures podcast good to have you
1: thank you great to be here looking forward to it
0: so let's go back to the beginning i hear from our mutual friends that you have a very kind of interesting backstory as they say in the trade I want to hear about it i think we want to hear about it because i think it's relevant to what you're going to do in the future so yeah why don't we go back to the beginning and tell us about your childhood
1: yeah i mean no problem i think i think one of the key things to remember about all this is this is no like rags to riches i'm right in the middle of it i've literally just come through a process of dumping my entire existence and reinvesting it back into what i'm doing today so I'm right right in the throes of, of all of this right now in probably the most intense period of my entire life. So right back to the beginning, I had a pretty normal life, whatever normal means to anyone who's listening to this, up until I was about 12. And then it all went slightly wrong, I guess, would be the... Uh, so that's
0: just just make sure we all know what normal is. Tell us the normal bit. What was going on pre-12?
1: What's normal to me? I mean, parents living in a village, two sisters... A dog called Snoopy that was a long-haired Dachshund that was about 905, I think, when I was 11. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just normal. You know, went to school fairly, not quite a Waitrose family existence, but, you know, that, that was normal. You know, that was, my dad was managing director of a very big technology company at the time. You know, TVs and photocopiers and all that kind of stuff. Like, pretty normal.
0: Life was normal. Okay, and then and then what happened?
1: I look at this a lot and I think, what did happen? Because it wasn't that afterwards. My family, if I look back on it, were, were it was a confrontational place. By that I don't mean abusive, I just mean that there was a lot of confrontation around the family in general, between people's parents and their extended families. And I could feel that when I was younger. My family had some challenges, I guess, you know, like a lot of people did just with work and changes in circumstances, illness. And I think a lot of those things just took their toll on me, on them, all of us as a whole. And I, 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 I as an individual, did not react well to those things at all.
0: Okay. There was definitely a kind of change, right? Yeah. Some stuff happened that meant that life changed quite radically.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. My father lost his job at the time. You know, it was... It was you, know, you went from a very powerful role a difficult time in your life you know like I suppose he would have been about the sort of age I am now 40 and from my own point of view all of a sudden you've gone into a world of a very different lifestyle where I had a younger sister so I'm looking at all this through the mind of a 12 year old right so my view on it might be different to the reality but in my view all of a sudden, you went from this normal existence to you can't go out, you can't go after school, you've got to come home, you've got to look after your sister. What I considered at the time to be like all these responsibilities I didn't, you know, I didn't need and ask for, I didn't want. I may be very rebellious because of it and started to become very difficult. When people become difficult in a very difficult environment, that causes a lot of conflict. And as I've learned, you know, when I want to be difficult, I can be difficult. <laughs>
0: So, what, what happened? Tell us where you ended up at that point.
1: So, I, I left. This was a process that probably started, and I, I remember being very angry from 12. I remember that specifically, very odd. I remember sitting in a dog basket when I was 12, having some very venomous thoughts, and I still remember that today, which is a very strange thing to remember. And yeah, I don't remember much of what happened between 12 and 15. It was like a blur, but I do remember walking out, and I do remember. Just saying, I'm not going back, and I do remember the consequences of that because I think at the time it was very much well, you know. As we, all, I think a lot of people do throw their toys out the pram, leave, expect some choir for help, pity party to follow, and everything to go back to the way it was, and nothing ever went back to the way it was was, and never did after that. I went, and that was it. <laughs> Nobody followed.
0: Just tell us where you what happened. It didn't end well, did it?
1: No, I didn't. I mean, I lived in a little village as I went, and there were people who I had been around for a while who were older than me. Um, I didn't really understand the dynamics of that, but those people were connected to people who were quite dangerous, quite frankly. Um, Now, they were very nice to me, and those people, you know, let me sleep on their sofa at that time. You know, there was a period, you know, after that where, you know, you kind of, not outstay your welcome, I think it was kind of outstay your welcome and also certain things are going on there's a lot of drugs around there's a lot of all sorts of things that where my point of view even at that stage I felt like I need to get away from that so I ended up sleeping outside in a bus stop and backs of people's cars and stuff like that for a while when I left you walk straight into the embrace of people that you believe have your best interests at heart who are doing the right things for you and it's not until a lot later on you realize you walked straight out of probably what was an emotionally difficult situation, but actually straight into a very dangerous situation. People that are doing time for armed robbery, drug dealing, people that are you know not afraid to use a lot of violence to get what they want. Late 15, 16, that's a challenging environment to look back on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt it. The bit that I'm kind of always interested in is the bit where you are living with this family, your family, you know, life is pretty good, and there's a series of events that happen, which means that you end up living rough on the street, frankly being brought up in the looser sense of words, by a bunch of kind of wrong-uns. Were there little moments in that period of time where either you went, Okay, I'm gonna walk away from my family now, or whether your family, you know, let you I guess with the benefit of hindsight, is there stuff you should have could have done differently?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I spent a long time looking at my life through the eyes of the individual at the time where everything was against me. It was all somebody else's fault. As you get older and you look back on it and you try and look at it in a different way, I was really awful. Let's share the credit for the situation. You You know, I was doing cocaine when I was 15 years old. I'd fallen into a difficult situation. I was around people that were not good for a 15 year old to be around
0: so that's a great little point to just pause on so you're doing cocaine age 15 what are your mum and dad's how do they interact with you at this point do they know you're doing coke what's their take on their situation with
1: their son I think my my mum and dad were struggling to deal with a, a huge change in their own situation and circumstances and I wasn't making it any better let's just be fair I was Very difficult. You know, I I hadn't adapted at all well. You know, I was acting up, but my version of acting up was I was out, you know, mixing with drug dealers and participating in those type of activities. And then I'd also started to take drugs. So then ultimately, you know, your mindset changes, you become more difficult. I was a hand grenade into an already fiery environment. So, you know, I can't blame anyone. There was a situation and I, it was no guidance. It was a complete clusterfuck. Excuse my language. That's what it is.
0: I get it. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to sort of parody this to what I was doing. but I was drinking Mary Dan cider when I was 15. My parents lived abroad and I, I you know, I kind of remember fessing up to them. It was quite a big deal. So I'd drink a bottle of Mary Dan cider once a week and they were like, oh, okay, son, we'll forgive you. You were doing Coke age 15, which I can't even imagine what that does for a 15 year old's brain. Genuinely, it can't be good. Did your parents know that? Did they know you were doing coke?
1: You've got to imagine the situation. So if you think about today, if you think about this need to belong, which is why we've got gangs and why we've got kind of the postcode thing, I vividly remember, like just needing to be part of something. Whether that was the case or not, I don't know what was going on with my parents. But for me, I still vividly remember feeling very isolated, very alone, very confused. So you then start attaching yourself to anything so in that case it was an environment of people that were I mean what we were calling gangsters right you know like low level then soon got slightly further up the tree but the point being that you know it was that combination of it was in a time when you think about kind of that sort of like 90s there was a lot of people drugs guns you know there was a lot of things around and ultimately you've got an impressionable young person who all of a sudden wants to be a gangster So, you know, my parents found cocaine and a replica firearm in my bedroom at one point when I was 15. So do you see what I mean? Like, I can only imagine what that did to them.
0: How did they respond? So the day they found a gun or a replica gun and a load of coke in your bed at age 15, what, just tell me about that day, that morning.
1: You know, if you think it was already past the point of sensible communication like if I think now as you know in my later life I've spent time around people that have addiction challenges you know you cannot negotiate like you can't talk sense to people that are not of right mind and I and as hard as it might be to think it I it doesn't seem like me anymore it seems like a different lifetime but when I think back on it you can't you couldn't communicate with me I was really angry really aggressive Um, frankly not of my right mind, and feeling a lot of pain, anguish and everything else that went with it. So there wasn't communication. There was was a lot of shouting, there was a lot of aggression, there was a lot of emotion, and then there was a lot of me leaving.
0: You know, people listening who have 15, 16-year-old kids going through stuff, (laughs) do you think your parents could have done it any differently, should have done it any differently, or was it just too high-octane for any parent to deal with?
1: I just don't, you know, I I spent a long time moaning and blaming everyone else. But my parents, if I put myself in their situation, like I I went out one day in that type of mindset and started waving this replica firearm around, which basically was picked up by one of the neighbours at the end of the street, which then initiated a process of the armed police being called to basically go to the youth club which was at the church where people thought I might have gone, to then the police finding out who this was and attending my parents' house to find out if they were aware that their 15-year-old had a firearm. I mean, what sort of reaction does a parents take to the fact that the armed police are hunting the village for their armed 15-year-old? I could look at this for a long time and say, oh, poor me, poor me, I had a really negative reaction to a situation that was beyond my parents' control. And then it escalated. And, you know, what well, could they have done anything better? I don't know. Could I, if I was in their shoes? You know, I know what it's like to deal with people that are like me. And I know there's very little you can do. Like, this isn't about blaming them. This is just about telling you a story of a chain of events.
0: Dan, I get all that. I did, it is that funny thing, right, which is... For parents of kids at that age and stage. So let's just imagine for a second, you know, the moment where, you know, the armed police are running around the village, all the neighbours are going, Dan's got a gun and some sort of old lady kind of, you know, taps your mum on the shoulder and goes, yeah, what went
1: wrong? What do you
0: think your mum would have said?
1: I don't know. If you think about what happens in life and then you think about as time goes by and actually the physical reality that people's Memories adjust to suit. So, my perception and, and theirs will be completely different, right? But what would they have said? What happened? I don't know. I suppose my parents would have probably taken the view that I just became a very obnoxious teenager. You know, I, I was being a teenager, but I just did it at a level. I mean, I can only imagine now. Like, if you think about what goes on with gangs, and you know, what does any parent think now about you know little Johnny or in this case little Dan? You know, ultimately, I mean, I was a picture of being like a really lovely child. I mean, genuinely, I was up until about 11 or 12. And then it's a series of events, isn't it? But who wants, I didn't want to take responsibility for that when I was 12. And I'm sure they didn't either. Whether they do now or not, who knows?
0: I guess the reason I'm asking the question is, is we've all been programmed by the media. I'm guilty of it too, right? I, I, I've i got a 14-year-old daughter, 11-year-old son. They're amazing. But, you know, things could go off the rails. And it's that kind of thing where we're all prone to think there's some kind of failure of parenting or there's some kind of failure of... Something's gone wrong with the parents that mean that their kids do that. And it sounds like, in your case, it's not that black and white. Let's not try and define it.
1: I don't believe that. For any parents, it isn't that. It was a chain of events and an environment surrounding me and my mindset. They were having very difficult times with work. And, you know, they're just human, right? People are trying to adjust. And I genuinely don't blame my parents. You know, I don't.
0: I'm hoping for our listeners, that's in itself quite a powerful message because we all watch the news, we all see these stories and we all go, oh my God, you know, the parents must have been shit or what were they doing? And actually, you know, you're a great example of stuff happens, right? And it's no one's fault and it's not your parents' fault. And it just happens. Anyway, I want to get on to the next chunk of your life because that's even more juicy, which is the the next bit. I'm not going to even preempt it. Tell me what happened next.
1: Yeah, so when you're, uh, you're out, you're living in and around. I'm trying to put it back onto a time frame. So we're talking about the sort of time when, for those people who remember the massive on surge of ecstasy and the club scene. And so back in the sort of mid nineties, you know, around that sort of time, grew up in Essex. It's been around Essex. Some of the people who I was living with who were in one way time, it felt very good to me. And, And I'm sure, you know, let's assume it was best intentions, but you end up being surrounded by people who are part of that. So, you know, going round to people's houses. And again, you find there was a lot of more, actually. I think, I don't want to say this, I don't want to say this as as a kind of scaremongering and all that kind of stuff. If you think about how long ago that was and access to guns and drugs and things like that was a lot more available than I think most people would like to believe even today, whether that was specific to that particular time there were some very public, or one particular very public execution in Chelmsford at the time. I don't know those people, but there were certainly people that I was with at the time who were quite close to their families. And so being in and around that, and being around that scene of clubs and people doing and selling a lot of drugs, this is before I was, well, yeah, sort of 18, 18, 19 years old
0: okay can we just dive into that so let's just do a snapshot of what's going on so you're 18 you're living in where
1: well i was living all over the place but i mean i'm sort of Chelmsford south end in a bedsit near the army and navy at the time
0: and what was your income where do you make money
1: well there was a couple of things i mean one we were selling Drugs, basically. Uh, marijuana, speed was quite a big thing. You know, a lot of the people I was around, it was all to do with ecstasy tablets, amphetamines, so speed, all that kind of stuff. There was a lot of that. But bear in mind, I was just a cling-on, really, hanging on to the side of this. And I had this ideal. Let me paint the picture. I wanted to be a gangster. I saw these people who were what I perceived to be hard Powerful people that are ultimately bullies, right? Let's be fair. But you're around that, and that's what you want to do. So my income was like the scraps off the table in comparison. But I was doing that, and I was also trying to find my way out by actually working. I tried working in a in a warehouse. I think that lasted about three hours at the time. But I went for this job, and basically, what it was was the PVC, the plastic window frames, right, that go on double glazing and they came off in these long strips and my job that i'd been found was to stand on the end of a production line with these little metal u-bends and was to insert them for 10 hours at a time was to insert said metal u-bend into the end of these that was it for 10 hours and i, I yeah I, I thought i would, I would literally <laughs> rather die so i left So. <laughs>
0: Tiny bit, apologies for trying to kind of simplify this, but I've watched Goodfellas. You're the kind of junior guy, you know, it's a classic pyramid scheme, right? Most gangster things are, I think. So you're at the bottom end, you're selling the drugs. Presumably you're not involved in actually killing people. No, no. He had to say. (laughs) But what you must have known that there was some nasty business going on at the top of the pyramid, right?
1: You could not know you're surrounded by it. I mean, you've only got to, but there are people whose relations at the time, it was one particular individual who, you know, I found myself in his flat. I must have been 18, 19, because I was driving. And it was a flat full of people who have subsequently written published books, a relation of one of those particular individuals. You know, and you couldn't not know. Like these there were people at you know, nightclubs in South End, people who were getting shot, you just couldn't not know. Like anyone who said, I oh, didn't know would be lying.
0: <laughs> but I guess that's the question, which is those nights or those evenings or whatever, you know, you're sitting there going, Yeah, where's my life going? I'm now part of this tribe where we sell drugs, we do what we do, but we also kill people at the top end of the pyramid. How do you feel about that?
1: All I was trying to do, and I want to paint this picture because I can only imagine it's the same for so many people today. You're just trying to survive. You've put yourself in a position, and it doesn't matter about the rights and the wrongs. I made the decision. That I did this. I did that. I created that environment. And then you're in it, and you're just trying to survive. You are the butt of everyone's jokes, the dickhead in the room you're the kid, you're the, you are the abject target of the bullying. And so you're just in an environment where, one, you're not clear of mind because you're scared, terrified, isolated, don't have any friends, any family, you don't think there's anyone there for you. You're stuck in the middle of it, you're doing ecstasy pills and all sorts of other stuff because that's just what you do. What are you supposed to think? I really relate to people now because, like, oh, so, you know, we well, yes, but... But you must surely you must have thought this. you don't think anything you just think I'm terrified and I've got nowhere to go and I don't know what I'm going to do day to day just don't know you know I got thrown out of my house in Chelmsford because I didn't have any money because I didn't keep that job and I'm just standing on the road and I remember as that particular day I lived in a house with an alcoholic like a very violent alcoholic And for some bizarre reason, as the landlord, I was standing out on the street. I was in Manor Road in Chelmsford, just off the Army and Navy. And the guy's telling me, Daniel, you're going to learn a harsh lesson today. You're going to learn you put a roof over your head. You put food on the table before you do anything else. And because you haven't done that, you're out. So all my immediate fears of being homeless, isolated and alone, bang, there they are again. And While he's doing it, the aggressive alcoholic who's for some bizarre reason thinks that because he's seen my bags that I'm nicking stuff off him, has come down and wants to violently assault me in the street. Now, this is a guy that knocks bouncers out just for fun. So that's what it was like. And so when people say, what were you thinking? I wasn't thinking anything. I was just getting on with it.
0: And what was the lowest moment at that point? What was the bit where you go, fuck, this is not how I planned it to be? I mean, was there a moment where you just either were facing something you didn't want to do or... You're just like bloody, I gotta get out of this shit. Was that one of those little moments?
1: Loads of them. I mean, I could tell you so many times, you're just like sitting on the floor contemplating suicide basically because you just don't know where to go. I mean, I, that particular example, you know, when we were saying we were in this flat, I mean, these people are out of their minds, right? You know, and then I'm forced, forced. So there was a, a phone call that came to one of that group's parents. Had just been arrested for having 50,000 ecstasy tablets, right? Now I have to drive, right? So now I'm being told, and it's not a question, it's you go and get the car, bang, off we go. I'm driving through South End High Street at three o'clock in the morning, not capable. Now the police are behind me, so I'm driving an old, broken old car through South End. It was either on a Thursday or a Friday, and if anyone knows, south end particularly back then the pub we all used to go to it was so bad that the cameras that they installed along south end high street they used to have a police command center and on a thursday friday and saturday all the cameras pretty much down that particular end of town were trained on that pub and that pub's bar manager had an intercom with a one with a direct link Talk to anyone like that sort of mid late 90s, you know, it was so I'm driving through all that. Now the police are behind me. I've got a car full of unhinged psychopaths who are out of their nuts and completely and utterly deranged because one of their mothers has just been basically pulled with even 10,000 or 50,000 pills or whatever. I mean, I, I can't even explain that. So I had to pull over in a garage to try and get my shit together, the police car pulled in, looked and drove off. If I, at any point in my life, thought I need to get the fuck out of this.
0: Let's get to the next bit. And again, listeners, there is a a lovely reprise to this where Dan does, A, find some success, and B, evolves or resolves to do what he's doing now, which is amazing, but... The next stage, I think, it was, is it the kind of Cornwall years? Is that
1: fair? Yeah, I mean, you got this was all sort of it was very difficult because it was all sort of merged in, which is, I mean, if you, th- I feel like I've lived like a thousand lifetimes in, in 44 years. Well, I
0: think you have, <laughs> sir.
1: I think you have. But yes, I mean, I was trying to get out of it. I met, I'd, I'd already knew some people. So I was living in a house with some guys who were quite entrepreneurial. You know, I was just looking for opportunity. So, anyway, I met this guy. He'd sort of had quite I think, quite a challenging background in a similar way but was trying to create a more state so he got into sales you know I was I was living in the house with these guys just outside of Brentwood it was fantastic it was it had motorcycle parts and a slot machine in the living room a uh, purple and yellow checked tiled floor it was a squat basically <laughs> one of those guys was always thinking about you know the next sort of entrepreneurial way forward and we were well, he was selling mobile telephones. So, when mobile telephones was a thing and Hutchinson Orange before it became Orange and all that. So, he was working in a telephone shop, he was a good salesman and decided that he was going to change the world by selling phones and worked out if you sell secondhand phones to airtime providers, that you get really good commission rates. And then realized that you could only do that if you had a shop. But then realized that if you had these things called programming sheets, and you could actually add a 1P coin. You could wedge the 1P coin in the bottom of the phone and reprogram it without the 10 grand computer. So we were doing that. He then said, great, we're going to go to Cornwall. I, mean, yeah, I was just like, great. You know, he was like my person to attach myself to at the time. So we all went to Cornwall to sell mobile phones.
0: Tell us about Cornwall.
1: I think Cornwall was a bit of a, a way, we're all trying to escape. A couple of people went down there with, I think we're all just trying to look for something different. And the idea was that, you know, we now knew that we could make some money, perfectly legitimate, by the way, selling mobile phones. It was, I mean, other than having a different way to program them, it was it was a legit, we were working with some of the big airtime providers. And we went down and we realized that basically uh, nobody cared about mobile phones. It was pasties and tractors and that was it. So that was a complete failure. So then we decided we would start selling cars and we used to go to the breakers and we had a guy with us. Who could do that? So we'd fix them up and get a car for 15 quid and make an inner wing out of a washing machine and a head gasket out of a porridge packet and set it. But basically, Cornwall was a complete flop, came back from there with absolutely no money and went to live in a bed sit at about 50 quid. Because at the time, before as well, like you know, you weren't getting any benefits or anything like that. So by this time you just get what you get and, and that was it. So I had about 50 quid, flagged my way into a uh, bed sit and just had to find a job basically and that that's pretty much though where I started getting into like I'd been trying to find my way into work and I managed to get a job in the British Gas Transco telemarketing center dealing with emergency gas calls and stuff and also there was a number of different jobs going on there at the time and I I met a lady who really kind of helped me out and there was a number of things there was I was working in warehouses I was doing a bit of that on the call center. And then basically I got the opportunity through this lady who owned a recruitment company to go work for a telemarketing company that was selling advertising space. And I appreciate time, so I'm trying to condense some of this down. But that company which I was selling for was all holiday advertising. And then it turned out that they didn't really exist. And the guy, what he used to do was have a certain amount of magazines printed, distribute them round, the various shops, and I mean distribute. he would walk into the shops with a handful of magazines and stick them on the shelves in places like WH Smiths and stuff like that, so that if any of us ventured out, we would sort of think it was legit. And after that all sort of went under, my big opportunity really was that she got me into a little software company in Basildon in Essex called Quintech, and a guy called Tom Lee. He was a legend. You know, I mean, he, he knew that I knew that I didn't know what I was talking about, and he knew that I was full of shit. But he also knew that I would have, you know, that he would give me an opportunity, and he did. That was it.
0: So, Dan, I've got a, two questions. Okay, one is: Was there a point in your life where you looked at what you were doing and went, "This is now legit"? Because obviously, even even shoving coins into the back of phones to reprogram them, I used to work in the mobile phone It's not entirely legit. What was the point where you went, "I'm kosher now"?
1: That was working for Tom. You know, Tom turned my life around like, you know, he was a hard, hard man. If You think about like the 80s salespeople, like managing sales teams, but he, he'd done very well. And he gave me an opportunity. And in fairness, there were three people. There was Tom Lee, Chris Pryor and a lady called Anne Holbrook. And Anne interviewed me. So did Chris. And then Tom owned the company. And they all knew I wasn't qualified, but they just gave me an opportunity. And that that was the turning point for me.
0: And you, you obviously had a good chunk of success at that point in your career. What? Just tell us about that.
1: I was teamed up with a group of young people in that group. And basically, it was a change of environment. You know, I, they put me on selling bums on seats. They had a little part of their business, which was doing not very much. And they gave it to me. And it was about selling seats at training courses and their software subscription stuff. But I was really good at it. And I was very motivated to make sure I didn't go back. And I ended up taking, they were doing literally nothing. And then I, within two years, I was, I'd was i reached a point of selling for them that they had like an annual global sales event. And I was the, I think the youngest person to ever make it over there. Like, you know, I was sitting on the top table with a guy called Ruby Austin, who was a, a shoe salesman originally, I believe, built this company called PC Docs. PC Docs was the provider to let it just it was a massive opportunity for me and it that's what turned everything and my mindset around really
0: obviously we also covered some great success but there's also been some other stuff that's not been hugely helpful tell us about that
1: you know these days I'm very comfortable with who I am what I am what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and I'm very happy to be vulnerable and share with people my stories and I dealt with problems with drink, alcohol, food, and yeah, you know, I had a long standing problem, whereas I didn't believe it was a problem with cocaine. You know, I did my first line of cocaine when I was 15, and I did my last line of cocaine when I was 43. During all of that time, while I was enjoying varying degrees of success, I had some fundamentally underlying challenges, and I was associating myself to people that were allowing me to just live out my story and that really accumulated through some let's just say relationships in my life which I had convinced myself were all just fun and it was all about fun and you know work hard play hard and all this stuff and then just you know realized that through a series of traumatic events by dealing with extended family members and people that were seriously had some real problems with alcohol that you're looking at yourself in a few years time and then more importantly you're looking at yourself today and going I will be dead you know you are like just a mess they say there's nothing more powerful than a changed mind when I hit my 40th birthday I'm doing it I know who I want to be I know what I'm capable of being and I know what I'm going to do and I struggled from 40 to 44 to make it right, to really know how to implement the person that I should and could be. But I really got it right at 42, and I've been nailing it since.
0: But, Dan, look, we all have a simple story. Would it be fair to say that you, you were very successful? You lost your way a bit, potentially through drugs and alcohol. Is that fair?
1: I drove headfirst into the ground nosedived, smash. But I managed to pull up at the last minute, I think.
0: What gave you that insight to pull up? I mean, that's always interesting, right? How, how come you managed to turn it around?
1: You know, you can look at other people and blame other people for your circumstances, or you can look at other people and see it as what it is, which is a reflection of your own decisions in life. And that reflection of my decisions and all the things I've created and all the shit story that I keep telling myself became abundantly clear. So I was literally just staring at all the excuses and realised that it's me. I own it. I'm responsible for everything. And it was such a an epiphany moment that I'm just not having it. I know what I want to be and I know I'm capable of being. I'm, I'm just doing it and I don't care what the cost, what the sacrifice. Don't care. I'm doing it. And the whole positive transformation initiative was about personal transformation. It was about being the person that I know I could be. It was about creating opportunities for other people. And it was about proving, not only to myself, but to everyone in my life, that doesn't matter how bad your circumstances or how much crap you tell yourself, that, you know, let's say, nothing more powerful than change mind. If you want to do it, you just do it.
0: Do you have kids?
1: I do have a son who, you know, we had do not have a relationship but unfortunately, you know, that was a part of my life. You know, very early on, we reconnected a bit later on in my life. But, you know, there's a lot of challenges around that.
0: You might be listening to this now, Dan. What
1: would you say to him? I'm sorry. You know, it's... Um... Sorry. I'll just say I'm um, sorry. Sorry about what? I was uh, just, i got it wrong. You know, I was a very, very uh, selfish, very selfish person who was going in the wrong direction and uh, continued to go in the wrong direction, believing it was the right way to go. And he was a a casualty of very bad decisions. Um, And, yeah, I'm sorry, you know, I just goes back to my parents. You know, he can look at me now and say, what what an asshole! you know, what sort of shit decisions did you make? And I'm trying to adjust my perspective to understand how I've behaved back to my parents to realise that, you know, we don't know.
0: How old is he now, Dan?
1: Uh, He's 20, he's in his 20s, so (laughs) mid-20s. But, uh, yeah, it's tough, that one. You caught me on the unawares there. But, I mean, it's... Sorry, mate. No, no, no. Look- Listen, I
0: think I think a good place to end is for you to tell us about what you're doing now, the Possible Transformation Group, because it, it is amazing. I'm sorry a little bit to our listeners for focusing much on the despite, but, you know, I think despite is relevant. But I, I want to hear... I'm going to stop talking now and let you, Dan, talk about the Possible Transformation Plan. So, please, crack on.
1: Thanks. No, no, I mean, I'm very grateful for the opportunity and and, and that's my big word. Everything is about opportunity and all through my life, everything else that's ever gone on, my decisions, total ownership of that. But three things I identified as I got on in my career, I realised that I really wanted to do something for other people to create the right opportunities and the right platform for people to be able to not have to make the same mistakes and also to have a support infrastructure that they could really build on Uh, and relationships are a massive part of that and finding people who are like-minded that want to help people create opportunities and so I realised I was working you know in technology I was working with a lot of charities I'd been very much involved with schools and development and I realised that we are in a really difficult time you know I was in a difficult time we're in a difficult time and I thought what are the three things that I could do well to do something with the second half of my, let's assume I've got another another life. You know, I've got, I'm 40, let's assume I get another 40 years. What am I gonna do with it? And what I'm gonna do with it is create opportunity for people. And I thought, well, I'm good at bringing people together for whatever reason that is, that seems to be something I can do well. And I'm quite good at finding very different ways to access money and resources, maybe because of my background. You know, I've got a very different way of seeing the world and thinking about things. And so I said, right, I'm going to create something that does all of that. It's all about I'm going to utilise my own personal transformation. I'm going to turn this out this thing called positive transformation. I took 320 people out for dinner at the Rosewood Hotel in 2019. You know, just said to everyone, right, I believe in finding people's passions, connecting them with resources and funding and opportunity to widen the impact of other people's programmes so that we can level up society and create opportunity for everyone. So I launched something called the Positive Transformation Initiative. And within sort of six months of that dinner, we had multiple people collaborating, identifying ways that they could do better things in society. That's gone on to create you know sort of 30-odd national programmes. We've set up in South Africa, we're funding a project over there, which is the start of building entrepreneurial skills and development for young people That positive transformation initiative has led to working, building something called the Opportunity Academy, which identifies significant resources and funding. And instead of doing what organisations have tended to do in the UK, which is to become potentially a private equity-backed organisation, access money and then suck it all out in profit, the Opportunity Academy engages with employers, it works with communities, It accesses resources and funding, and then it builds programs and projects in society. So it supports communities, it supports schools. It's looking to build a a sustainable backbone to give devices and connectivity to people who need it. Uh, Once all of the charitable hysteria that's all over the media at the moment, once that fades, how do we provide long-term support to people that need it by giving them connections to the right people, resources from those people and how do we give them funding so how do we make a systemic change in society by accessing people's passions and then giving them connections resources and funding and that's that's what we're doing
0: you said you want to impact a billion people why not a million or a hundred thousand i mean billions are a big number why a billion
1: I mean, actually, you know, if you want the honest answer, it's only—it's not a billion, it's, it's 10 billion. Because when I said a billion, the whole point was I had a speech which was given by a guy called Admiral McRaven. He's very famous for this speech about, you know, make your bed. If you want to change the world, make your bed. He's Admiral William McRaven. But he talks about in his speech, it was a commencement speech for the University of Texas. And he talks about if you want to make an impact in the world, Focus on, you know, impacting the lives of 10 people, and they impact 10 people, and they impact 10 people. And ultimately, within a certain amount of time, you can impact the lives of everybody on the planet. And for me, this isn't about some business. This is about my change in life and doing something to create opportunities. And in my mind, I thought, right, well, if you're going to make a systemic change in society, you need to look at it generationally. You've got to think bigger. You've got to think collaboratively. You've got to think very differently. And to hit the lives of the everyone on the planet, you would need to impact positively the lives of a billion people. And ultimately, very again, being very fortunate through this collaboration, you know, we've now got people coming together with the sort of technology, with people who have been responsible for changing the lives of people in countries that are coming together to help us do this. But no, in reality, as someone pointed out to me the other day, why a billion? Why not 10 billion? Because, frankly, if I was one of those people, one of those nine billion that someone said, die about them, then what would I be doing now today? Or what would those people be doing? I don't want to exclude anyone. It's got to be accessible, transparent, and inclusive. And it's got to impact the lives of everybody.
0: Dan, your positivity and your ambition is genuinely not, I've not met anyone that succeeded that. So, and I'm sure there's our listeners sitting here going, wow frankly you know what a story and what an ambition how can they help
1: we've set this up and the way this is set up is by the fact that our whole model is about collaboration so all we need people to do is get in touch the way our whole model the whole funding means that if we help make other people successful by virtue of doing that everyone involved becomes more successful so, all they need to do is either contact me or the Positive Transformation Group via the website on my LinkedIn. So, it's just positivetransformation.org or just dan.brown at positivetransformation.org.
0: Dan, thank you. And I really appreciate your story and your energy. And I wish you all the best. And I don't doubt you'll be very successful. And I really appreciate it. Final words to you, Dan. No,
1: I'm, I'm just grateful the opportunity I'm not I'm not asking for anyone's approval my story is my story what I'm doing now is what I'm doing now I really want to find people that want to come together collaboratively and and help create opportunities at a time when people really need it for those of you who do I would love to talk to you for those of you who don't so be it
0: cheers dude mate I appreciate it. lots of love to you man
1: thank you mate really appreciate it cheers see you later
0: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found Dan's story inspiring. I, as you could hear, I think he's an amazing guy and I think he's really honest and inspirational and wow, what a story. Please do keep listening. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy days and weeks to tune in to us. Please do leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts and a rating stars all stars are good and also feel free to drop your line gav at the do lectures.co.uk this show was produced by george McDonough. the music was by james morton take care stay safe bye